Good morning. How are you? Good. Happy August 26th to you. We are, uh, we're going to be in Acts chapter 9. So if you bought a, brought a Bible and you want to get there and actually see it for yourself, which I highly recommend, don't trust me. The screens are going to say the exact same thing, so you could trust the screens, I guess. But um, if you can see it in your very own Bible, uh, how much the better, right? Um, before we jump in, I would love to just pray. Uh, so if you want to bow your head with me. Uh, Lord, we're going to continue to worship you now, not by singing necessarily, but um, by submitting ourselves under your word. And by no means do I claim that my words um, have any authority, but um, I just pray now that you would help each of us to hear your words spoken to us, that if our hearts are hardened, that you would soften them. If um, for whatever is happening in life, we have fear or doubt or any of the, the, those things that you would speak to us in a, a deeper place than a, a person on a stage could ever speak to, that your spirit would be in this place and ultimately that your name would be honored and magnified in this whole thing. And I pray that in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, so we, are, we have been in a series called Outsiders, and this is the last um, week of that. Uh, the whole premise of the series has been um, this idea that uh, there, by default, we are outsiders with God. And that's a hard truth for people to understand these days, but by default, we have all turned our back on him, we have rebelled, we've said, eh, and we've walked our way, and he has um, put us in this state, basically, basically a state of judgment. We are all outsiders, but the good thing, the good news in this series is that he doesn't leave us in that place. In fact, he chooses us and he runs after us and he grabs us and says, nope, come with me. And as, uh, as disciples of Jesus, as students of his, what we've been doing is we've been looking to the example of Jesus, specifically from his life, that's like where we've been focused mostly in the gospels, and saying as his disciples, how can we follow Jesus' lead in joining him and doing that? Like, how did Jesus reach out to outsiders and pull them along? And what we've realized through the whole series, kind of the tagline, if you will, over the whole thing has been, Jesus loved outsiders by inviting them in. And we saw it with Zacchaeus, we saw it with children, we saw it with the woman at the well, um, all these different people. Uh, so t today, on this last Sunday of the series, what I would like to do is walk us through uh, Acts 9, it's a pretty good-sized chunk. We're just going to kind of walk verse by verse. Um, and the category, I guess you could say, of people we're going to talk about today is, of the category of outsiders, is those who are hostile towards faith, hostile towards Jesus, towards his disciples, towards church, maybe, towards this whole thing. Um, so with that, um, let's just jump right in, shall we? Save some minutes in silly intro and just get right to it. So Acts 9, verse 1 says this. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest. So it says that, the third word in there, still, but Saul still breathing threats and murder. It says that because if you flip back a page, at least in my Bible, and you look at 8, 3, it says, but Saul was ravaging the church, entering house after church, or house after house, which is basically how they did church back in the day, right? Uh, they met in houses. He would enter house after house, and he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. So when it says, but Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, um, it has been telling stories since 8.3 about how the church 
has basically just been exploding. Um, how, how the disciples have been pushed out of Jerusalem. They've been pushed to the other regions and like God told them to do. But Saul is still up to the same thing. Um, he's still breathing threats and murders against the disciples of the Lord. And he went to the high priest. Um, it says in verse 2, And he asked the high priest for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So Saul went to the high priest, the high priest, like the religious leader in Jerusalem, and said, hey, I hear something's going on in Damascus, which, by the way, is 135 miles north of Jerusalem. So it's not like the next town, like, hey, I want to go from Woodenville to Kirkland and, and do something here. He's saying to, to the high priest, I am going to go to, to, to Damascus, and I would like letters from you so that I can enter those synagogues that far away so that I can bring back people who are going after Jesus, who are um, belonging to the way, and I can bring them back bound in chains back to Jerusalem. It, it's, it's as if the people who are pushed out of Jerusalem, who are dispersed, right, from persecuted by him in the first place, he's like, uh-uh. You ain't going to Damascus to hide from me. I'm going to go hunt you down. I'm going to bring you back, and uh, there's going to be justice in his eyes. Um, you're going to pay for what you're doing, for following Jesus, essentially. That is devotion to your hostility. Uh, I hope we can at least agree on that. I don't know if there's anything in your life where you feel so passionate about that you would walk up to someone with authority and say, I need letters from you so that I can walk to Portland it's going to take me about five days to walk there because when I get there, I want to put these, this group of people in chains, whoever that is for you, and I want to drag them back here and I want them to, to you know, have to deal with their crime or you know, with whatever. I don't know if there's anything in your life where you would walk to Portland to do that. There was something in Paul's life where he would do that. Whether he rode a donkey or a horse or he walked, I'm not sure, but it's about a five days walk if he uh, was, going to walk, was going to actually walk there. So the question that we're, we have to ask before we get in for him is why the hostility? Why, is, why does Saul care so much, right? If the message of the New Testament, if the message of Jesus is, if you boil it down, is a message of love and it's a message of grace and it's, you know, all these happy things, if you will, why does Saul hate it so much that he would go up to Damascus to drag people back down to Jerusalem? And then once you answer that, the question is, why is there hostility now? Like, why do people care? Why do people care that we have gathered on a Sunday morning in order to worship Jesus? Again, especially if it's just a, a message of love and grace and peace and all these um, really happy things. So for, for Paul, he tells us in a couple different places, but if you go to Galatians chapter 1, you don't have to. I'll go there. You just sit there and relax. Uh, Galatians 1 verse 13, this is what he, how he's explaining it, at least briefly. He says, For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and I tried to destroy it. So he's talking about what he was doing recorded in Acts, right? Verse 14, And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. So when he says that, or what, you know, what, the, what was the reason that he was doing this? It's because he was so extremely zealous for the traditions of of his fathers. The traditions of his fathers would be the Old Testament law, and as a, especially as a, he was a Pharisee, so he was like a religious leader, essentially, a, a teacher um, who was zealously, zealously, extremely devoted 
to law keeping. It wasn't just the Old Testament law, the first five books of the Bible. It was layer upon layer that they had even added um, to the Old Testament with rabbinic codes and all sorts of stuff. So what he was saying is, I was so zealous about the traditions of my people, my fathers, my tribe, um, if you will, that I was willing to stamp out anything that seemed like it was in opposition to it. So that was Paul's reason. But if, what, why is there hostility for us today? That's a question we have to, why do people get so worked up about it? If you flip through the pages of scripture, this is something that I think is important because a big thing that's happening in the church these days is I think we're loosening, we're, we're losing our vision, our grip on the, the idea that um, there is hostility and that that's okay. We're losing our uh, ability to deal with the fact that Jesus, God, throughout the entire scripture is always willing and he does it in almost every page to square off and anything that doesn't represent, doesn't represent truth and doesn't represent him well and he's willing to square off with that lie and he's willing to say, that isn't right, it's not true about me and you need to change. Your thinking has to change. If you look at the life of Jesus, when he comes, the first thing that he's telling people, he walks on the scene, and the first thing he's telling people is, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is here. He didn't come and like carry sheep and kiss babies and stuff. He walked up to the crowds and he looked at them and said, hey, everyone, how's it going? I'm over here. Hey, you need to repent, turn around, whatever you're doing, and you need to follow me, and you need to follow me to God. I'm the only way to him. And so, so all to say, since the garden, since that lie happened and, and we all fell, Christianity and even the ways of God has always been a, a sort of hostile um, sort of territory because it's what God has been up to since the garden. He's been squaring off on all the lies that lead us away from him, and he said, that's wrong, you need to repent, you need to follow me. Um, uh, there's a whole lot more I would like to say about that, but that's why he was hostile, because he was devoted to the law and to, to all that stuff. The reason there's hostility in the first place is because truth matters, and when you know the truth, it will set you free, and so Christians throughout the ages have been very, very committed to truth. Um, so with that, we're going to keep going. Uh, we'll go to verse 3. So now as he went on his way, he's going to Damascus now. As he went on his way, he approached Damascus. So if he was walking, he's now been walking for five-ish days, right? Long trip. And suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? So uh, the whole idea that we're going to do today is we're looking for Jesus' example for us as his disciples. How should we follow in reaching out to hostile outsiders? If we see a verse and there's not really an example for us to follow, we're going to try to keep moving. So as you look at this, uh, is there an example for us to follow? Well, he, he's walking and all of a sudden there's a bright shining light from heaven. Saul falls to the ground. He hears a voice saying, why are you persecuting me? Not necessarily a whole lot of example for us as his, as his disciples to follow. There is a good principle for us to know, um, and that's no matter, even if the person is the most violent, uh, hostile opponent of Jesus, they ain't nothing. They're, they're actually, they're absolutely no threat uh, to Jesus. Even if you're the most violent opponent of Jesus, in a moment, 
He can knock you off your horse. He can humble you. He can knock you to the ground. And he can completely flip your life upside down. Even if your heart is light years away, even if you're such an outsider, you're so far outside the gate that we can't even see you, in a moment, he can change your life. Uh, And in this case, there's not really much for us to follow, right? So when you read the Bible, there's... um, you have to ask yourself the question. A book of Acts is a great place to ask the question uh, when you read a story in there to say, is this story des- descriptive or is it prescriptive? Is it, the difference is, is it describing something that happened? It's just part of the story. This is part of Saul's story. Or is it prescriptive, meaning, yeah, it happened and it's prescribing the way that it should be in the future. So like, is this the normal way for God to call people? If you're, you're, you're walking somewhere and the normal thing that God does in someone's life is he shines, there's a light show, it scares you, you fall to the ground, and then all of a sudden you're freaked out and your life has changed. I would probably argue no. Uh, that is not usually the way it goes. Is there an example for us to follow in that? Should we carry a light kit around and try to make that happen for people and like do a little thing and then try to make this whole experience? Of course not. That's ridiculous. So what this is, is it's something that's describing um, Paul's experience But there is a principle in there, and I think that experience is, it doesn't matter how far you've walked away from God, he can reach you in a moment, and he can open your eyes to to what's going on. And that's important for us as his disciples to know, because whether you're that person and you identify with that, and you're sitting here today, you feel like you're just light years away from God, or you're a disciple and you know someone, a family member or a coworker, and you've got people that seem like they're light years from God, you can't you can't see that chasm between them and God. You just have to see that with God, he can pull people right into the fold like, like that. He can knock people to the ground. He can open their eyes. Um, and it's a, a, a beautiful thing. In my own life, he didn't, there was no light shining or anything like that. I happened to, uh, the way he, you could say he knocked me off my horse, knocked me on my feet, was just a really long season of like super extreme loneliness for me in high school. Uh, and then someone invited me to church. And in that place, the service, I'll just be honest with you, the service was, it was terrible. Uh, the, I mean, if you, if you really come down to it, the person like did three songs with just his guitar, just him and his guitar with like 40 high schoolers. It was kind of awkward. And then he set his guitar down and then he opened his Bible and said, all right, let's talk about, I don't even remember the verse. If I look back on that now, I would be like, this isn't a good, they're not doing a good job here. Their transitions are terrible. All the things that we get worked up about that we shouldn't. But in me, in my life, sitting in that seat as a junior in high school, my heart was pounding. I couldn't get enough of it. He wasn't winsome. He was just talking about the Bible. And I had no choice in the matter. It felt like I had nothing to do with it. I was following Jesus from that day forward. Like it just, that's what it seems like looking back on that, right? And so... Again, is there an example for us to follow? Not necessarily, but there is a perspective for us to have as his disciples, um, even as we just get started in the story. So, um, let's keep going. Says, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Not, not really a huge example for us to follow, but there is, uh, again, another principle. of Jesus is saying, however you treat a disciple of his, you're essentially treating him. Because, I don't know if you realize, but Saul never, Jesus has already died, rose. He's not being persecuted directly by Saul. Jesus never was. But Jesus is saying, why are you persecuting me? It's because he was persecuting his followers. What you do to Jesus' followers is what you do uh, to him himself. 
keep going. And he said, Saul said, who are you, Lord? And I imagine that was said very nervously uh, at the time because he's probably realizing, I can't imagine the sinking feeling of I am going to Damascus to grab disciples and I am on the ground face down and someone is talking to me about getting persecuted. This is not going to go well for me. Uh, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. That's a scary phrase. Like, what does that mean? Like, okay, uh, we're going to keep going, though. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand, and they brought him into Damascus. So, uh, that's, yeah, that happened. let's just keep going to verse 10. Uh, now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. So this is where, for us, looking for an example, I think this is where it gets, like, amazing, to be honest. Not just interesting, amazing. Uh, now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. That's awesome. He, the, he said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, here I am, Lord. Now, a couple observations just from that. First off, if, uh, if you look back over the pages of Scripture and you see the Lord, or especially an angel of the Lord, talk to someone, what is always the follow-up phrase that they use to that person? Fear not. Yeah. Don't worry. You're okay. Get up off the ground. Uh, because every time, basically anyway, the Lord talks to someone, or an angel of the Lord does, there is this immense, like, fear. There, you see, they're, they're frightened by the majesty of it all. But in this case, the Lord says, Ananias, and it seems like from the story, Ananias is like, yeah, here I am, Lord. Which tells me, anyway, that he's probably heard from the Lord before, for one, or if he hasn't, he expects to. Which is a whole lot different than you hear it and you're like freaking out because that's never, that hasn't even crossed your mind that the Lord might actually tap you on the shoulder and say, hey, you. Um, so to me, that's amazing that his reaction was like that. It's kind of like a, a hunting dog, right? I'm not that I'm a big hunter, but if, you're, if you've got a dog that's not trained and you fire your shotgun at a bird, it's going to freak the dog out if they're not trained because they've never heard it before. But if you have trained that dog from when it was young to hear that gunshot, um, it, it makes it so that they're immune to it, I guess you could say. They, they can hear that sound. It doesn't freak them out, and it makes them useful. Well, in this case, we've got a disciple who is either used to hearing the Lord's voice or he at least expected it. That is a good example for us as his disciples. Second thing is pretty cool um, to me is the Lord is about to change Saul's life. Saul is going to become Paul, for one, but he's going to become arguably the most influential person in church history. He's going to write a huge chunk of the New Testament. He is going to stand before kings, all this amazing stuff. So he, we're on the precipice of the, one of the most influential people in the church being converted, if you will, and the Lord calls on Ananias. Who the heck is Ananias? Like, where's Peter? Where's James? Where's John? Why isn't God like, hey, Saul's about to become Paul. Uh, so Peter, where, what are you doing? You're not doing anything important. Why don't you start walking up to Damascus? 
Yeah, why don't you stop all the church planning you're already doing? You're an important guy. You need to develop a 12-point uh, you know, list of why Saul, who's a really smart dude and might need 12 points to be converted, right? You need to go convince Saul that this whole Jesus movement is legit. He doesn't do that at all. He taps on a, guy named, a guy's shoulder named Ananias, who we never hear about again except for once in chapter 22 of Acts where Saul, or Paul is just merely like retelling his story in front of a king. Like, yeah, Ananias came and talked to me and I became a believer. Otherwise, Ananias is like totally unknown. To me, and to, I think to us as a community, that sets a great uh, example because if, if I look at myself in the mirror and I look at even this group, who are we? Like, pretty normal people, right? That's one thing I love about Arbor Church is we're kind of just like incredibly average. We're like extra average. You know what I mean? Extraordinarily normal. Uh, And I like that. Like, I get to stand up here with a paint-stained flannel and I'm not going to get some weird email afterwards saying, hey, tuck in your shirt and why don't you wear something nice, huh? Um, Because we kind of realize that that's not the point. This... Jesus is the point, right? It's the same thing that's happening here. Although God could have tapped on someone a lot more important, he chose Ananias. It's the same for us. Like, yeah, who are you? Who am I? And tomorrow you might talk to an outsider who becomes one of the most influential people in the church on behalf of Jesus and God's glory and God's name that the, you know, the night, the, whatever these years are, 2000s, has, has ever known. God would do that here. Why wouldn't he do it now? I think that's an important point to, to show from this. So Jesus called on Ananias, an unknown yet ready disciple. Totally unknown, but it seems like he was sitting there ready to go. Here I am, Lord. Which even that phrase, if you think through the Old Testament, that's shown up several times, right? If you think of Samuel um, getting called by God in the temple. Here I am, Lord. Uh, it's like a phrase that's pretty incredible in the life of Abraham. You hear it in Isaiah. Uh, it shows up several times. One of the best phrases you could say as a disciple, here I am, Lord. Even if that's all you take away from today, I'd be okay with that. Uh, let's keep going. Verse 11. And the Lord said to him, and to Ananias, rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying. You have to remember, Saul has been led by the hand to this house of uh, Judas, and he is blind, he can't see, and he is probably freaked out by this point. I mean, if you're blind, and the Lord has talked to you from a, like a bright shining light and said, why have you been persecuting me? Go, I'm about to tell you what you need to do, and you have no idea what that means. Yeah, he's praying. Uh, verse 12, and he is seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. Now, if my name was Ananias and I heard the Lord tell me that, I'd be like, wait a minute. You told him that a man named Ananias is going to come lay hands on him? Like, my name's Bob. But if, like, in the vision, hey, a guy named Bob's going to come talk, I'd be like, there's a lot of Bobs. Are you sure it needs to be me? But that's not Ananias. He doesn't do that, which is a good thing. Uh, Verse 13 So Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here in Damascus, he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. So we've got Ananias, who at the beginning, the Lord said, Ananias, that's literally what he said in the vision. And he stands up and says, here I am, Lord. 
And he said, the Lord says, okay, go to the house. You're going to go talk to Saul. And it's like he goes, oh, hmm. Lord, uh, we need to chat about that one, actually. Because of all the people in Damascus to go talk to, it seems like he's the one I wouldn't really want to go talk to. Because in fact, and then he educates God on all the facts about, uh, about Saul, right? Uh, I like... I like the fact, again, that the Bible's real. It's one of the many reasons I think it's completely legit is because you wouldn't make this stuff up. If you're trying to highlight like the growth of the church, you wouldn't be like, yeah, and then this one guy named Ananias who was a huge part in helping to convert Saul, he like, you know, he kind of like argued with God a little bit and he had his doubts. And so you wouldn't highlight that stuff. You would never make this up. But so you've got God tapping Ananias, on, calling on Ananias who has legit concerns about going and talking to a guy like Saul. That might be the case for us. Again, if we're looking for examples, you might walk into a situation uh, talking to an outsider who's hostile and you might have completely legitimate concerns about bringing up the name of Jesus. So did Ananias, for sure. And I don't know what your concerns may be. Maybe you're a business leader. And so you're like, if I tie my name or especially my businesses to the name of Jesus, that could have negative effects on my business, or if you're list like most people who are just, you know, complete, extraordinary average people, uh, the fear usually just comes down to if I engage this hostile person um, with the name of Jesus, they just have the power to kind of taint my name in a way, whether they're posting things on social media or whether they're just talking to other people, whatever it might be, that really, at least for me, gets down to the root of it. Why am I afraid uh, of having my name tied to Jesus, it's about something about reputation. But that got my brain at least spinning about the fact that that should be our goal. As we walk into any conversation, into anything we do, our goal as disciples of Jesus should be to have our name stained, and I air quote that one really hard, should be to have our name stained with the name of Jesus. If people think of Bob Lee, I want the first thought after that to be, that dude follows Jesus. I don't want their next thought to be, I think he's like a nominal kind of religious dude, maybe? It seems like it. He kind of fits the bill. Like, he has four kids. They're all homeschooled. Yeah, he's probably either Christian or Mormon. I don't know. Um, That's not how I want it to go. I want them to say, yeah, Bob Lee, the dude won't, he just won't stop. He's going to walk up to you and he's going to say, hey, I'm Bob. He's going to be nice and whatever, respectful and all that stuff. And then he's going to probably ask you a question like, hey, so uh, when do you want to talk about Jesus? Because it's going to happen. I would love it if my name had that tied to it. And yet we walk around this world and we kind of tiptoe through it as if it's uh, a risky thing. When often it's the very thing we should want as his disciples, as his followers. Even if it ruins your, what, your reputation ruins it? Are you kidding me? That would like build it. That would make it. That would make your reputation a thousand times better. So I know that doesn't touch into all the nuances of if you have a business and all that stuff, and I'm not going there. All I'm saying is Ananias had legit concerns. Even if you do, we'll see what happens in verse 15. So Ananias presents his concerns and verse 15 says, but the Lord said to him, go. Lord didn't stop and say, oh yeah, you're right. I didn't realize that. Uh, why don't we rethink this? Why don't instead we, you know, send whoever or whatever like that. The Lord responds to him by saying, go, for he is a chosen instrument 
of mine. Uh, when I hear that word go, it makes my brain at least think of the Great Commission. Um, I don't have a whole lot of verses memorized, but that one you know, kind of stood out to me uh, right from the get-go when he says to Ananias, go. It's kind of the same as Jesus telling all of his disciples, go and make disciples of all nations. And I think that's something that happens to us as people who are trying to follow Jesus in a place like the east side of Seattle. Um, the default for us becomes, well, I go when I feel really called to. Or I go when, I, when it seems like the Lord is really pushing it on my heart. It's not, it's not like our default place, right? Default for us should be, I'm going, I'm going to have that conversation unless the Lord somehow stops me on the way because he's already told us to go and make disciples of all nations. He's already made that clear. He doesn't have to keep remaking it clear in order for me to go talk to people. He's told us, why don't we follow it? That's kind of the, the principle there. Um, like even when I was a youth pastor for a little bit, uh, we would, every year, we would try to do a, a short-term mission. We went to the Philippines, we went to Mexico, stuff like that. And we'd have these conversations with students, even in their, in their parents, and the kids would say, but I don't necessarily know if I feel called this year to, like God is calling me to go on this trip. And I'd always say, he might not want you to go on this trip. Don't get me wrong. But he has definitely called you to go on this trip until he says otherwise. Your default should be go. Now, whether that's the most wise answer in the world, I don't know. But I do know that he's told us to go. Um, so uh, the principle here, if you will, is God calls on Ananias and then is very direct with him. He doesn't coddle Ananias and give him like an, an explanation of, no, this is what's going to happen and things like that. He actually commands Ananias to go in a way that just demands that he's going to have to trust him. He doesn't give him all the reasons. Because when Jesus tells him to go and talk to Saul, it's not like he's being mean-spirited like a dad who's just kind of grumpy. It's just that Jesus sees the whole picture, right? Jesus knows who's outside of time. He knows that if you go talk to Saul, he ain't gonna, nothing bad's going to happen. He's going to be converted, and you're going to have the coolest testimony in the world from, from this day forward. It's going to be like the best story you ever tell that you were involved with me, with God, in converting Saul, who becomes Paul. But we don't have that perspective, so um, God just is really direct with him. And I think he's really direct with his disciples. He expects obedience um, from us. So, but the Lord said to him, we'll keep going, go for he is a chosen instrument of mine for like the six of us who love the doctrine of election, we rejoice. Yeah, he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and children of Israel. Saul isn't left to his own wit or his own like morality to kind of figure it out on his own. He is a chosen instrument, but I know most people here don't care about the doctrine of election quite yet. I'll keep going. Uh, verse 16, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. That probably got Ananias a little bit more excited. Like, oh, okay, yeah, I'd probably go talk to Saul if it means he's going to have to suffer for your name. Because we don't realize this, but Saul may have hurt or put in prison or even killed, have been involved in the killing of people that Ananias knew. Like, you can't lose sight of the details in the story, right? Like, this has to come down to reality. There, there might actually be animosity between Ananias and this guy named Saul. Um, so who knows what that phrase meant to him or why the Lord uh, kind of pushed it in there. So verse 17. So Ananias departed and entered the house. Not very many words were spoken to him. Go to Saul, lay your hands on him, all that good stuff. And that I love how quick it just says, so Ananias departed and entered the house. Again, the thing for us is just the fact 
that God called on Ananias, who obeyed, who obeyed his Lord. The, the term Lord, the word Lord, turns up in this passage that we're going through seven times. Uh, and that phrase itself is one of the reasons, I think, um, for the hostility in the New Testament. If you ever come across this idea of like, why in the world is there all this hostility? Why are people being martyred and stuff like that? One of the basic creeds in the whole New Testament is just three words. Jesus is Lord. And when they walked, when a Christian walked onto the scene and said, Jesus is Lord, believe the good news, it sounded a lot like what the Romans would do when they walked into places. And they would say, Caesar is Lord, believe in the good news. That's something like, that's language they would use. So this was all very, what the Christians were doing in the New Testament was all very politically motivated, not motivated, but loaded. It was a politically loaded way of walking onto the scene, again, squaring off with lies and saying, Jesus is Lord. Not your government, not your worldview, not whatever tribe that you identify with, Jesus is Lord, and with that, with that, the effect that it had was the Roman government was not so keen on that, and so you see Caesars and you see leaders and all this stuff coming down on the church super hard because they had to stamp out anything that looked like rebellion against Caesar, right? So that term Lord even showing up is, uh, it's huge. So Ananias obeyed. Uh, we'll keep going in verse 17. And laying his hands on him, I'm sure Ananias wanted to lay his hands on him in a different way, but he laid his hands on him in a prayerful way, uh, laid his hands on him and he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. So Ananias knows that this Saul has been involved in the killing and imprisonment of a whole lot of disciples of the Lord. And yet, I think it's, it's because he not only was told by Jesus, that's clearly there, but it's because he knew the gospel in himself that had to be the thing that enabled him to go up to someone like Saul, who's been involved in such like, just disgusting things, and be able to say, I'm willing to put my hands on you and to call you brother and to say, the Lord's going to fill you, even you, with the Holy Spirit. Because if you walk into any situation as a disciple to talk to an outsider and you don't understand that you yourself, without Jesus, are an outsider. You are outcast. You, are, you deserve to be an outsider. And it's only because of grace and the fact that Jesus chooses us. And he says, nope, you're coming with me. And he says, you follow me and this is where we're going to go. And then he empowers you to actually do it. If you don't understand that, you don't have this place in your soul for other people who are messing up. So if you find yourself looking at outsiders and you're like, you fool, what are you doing? Things like that. You need to kind of recalibrate yourself and understand that that is the exact same place that we all live by default if the Holy Spirit isn't empowering us to understand what God is actually doing in our lives. It's all grace for all of us, which enables us to reach out to outsiders in grace and say, nope, follow Jesus with us. It's 100% grace. So the, the, the principle here is God called on Ananias who showed love even to this hostile outsider. He called him brother and said, I, I want, I'm gonna pray for you that you would be filled with the Holy Spirit. That is a huge move and as disciples, we should have the same sort of heart, Right? Verse 18 says, and immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. 
Then he rose and he was baptized. So in the same way uh, that Saul was baptized, it's a huge reason why we're doing it next week. He, his life was flipped upside down, and in a moment, he says, or if you can see it, basically, it's not even explicit in the text. He is basically laying his life down and saying, okay, Jesus is Lord. He rises, he's healed from the temporary blindness, and he's baptized, which means he's saying, yep, Jesus is Lord. I'm going to put my, you know, I'm going to bank my life on that, and publicly he gets baptized, which for him, can you imagine someone like Osama, let's just throw out the name, Osama bin Laden, someone who is viciously against whatever, a worldview, America or whatever it might be, or maybe even Christianity, having an experience and then turning around and then all of a sudden following Jesus, or even like get, get it out of the religious spectrum and just saying, I want to be an American citizen. Uh, can you imagine what that would do to a person like that, like the amount of humility that would take to realize I have been wrong about this, and now in the eyes of all the people I've been leading, I am going to show them publicly by baptism for, for Saul that I'm actually going to follow Jesus. That, again, to me just blows my mind. That's huge. That is work that only God himself would do in someone's life. So in the same way, what we're saying is if you haven't been baptized, but you're following Jesus, you're a disciple of his, next week's your week. I don't care if you've got to cancel vacation or something. You've got to be dunked in the tank and show the community that you have died with Christ and you've been risen to life with him. You've got to do it. It's, it's, it's part of disciples' stories. It's, it's, something, that, it's something that's been uh, told, told to us, right? And verse 19, last verse, and taking food, he strengthened. And then that starts his really amazing story. If you're not in like a normal Bible reading plan, just reading through at least the New Testament, I'd say the whole thing uh, should be the way it is, but at least the New Testament, you've got you to gotta read the whole rest of the story. It's amazing. So with that, what I want to say, kind of the so what, briefly, is if you're in this room and you feel like you yourself are an outsider, you got to think about this story and you got to think about the heart that God has for outsiders. No matter how far you think you are outside of God and him just embracing you and saying, follow me, we can do this together, you aren't that far because of the heart that God has for you and for me. It's all grace. He's always right there and he's always saying, let's do this. Let, let, it doesn't matter how hostile you've been in the past or anything like that. Today is the day for you to start following Jesus. If you do already follow Jesus and your disciple, I would say today is the day that you, like Ananias, you stand up and you say, here I am, Lord. And you start thinking and you start praying and you start actually having conversations with those who are outside, whether they're hostile or whether they're just broken or they're sad or they're sinning or whatever it might be. It's time for us, not that it hasn't been happening, I don't want it to sound too heavy, but it's time for us to all get on the same page and to follow and obey our Lord if we're going to call him Lord. That's all I'm saying. If we, can, if we can wrap ourselves around that and the grace of God can carry us through that, Arbor Church will have an impact on Woodenville for his name that is just unheard of, and that's what we're all praying for, right? Okay, so with that, I'm going to pray. I'll invite the band back up. We'll keep worshiping, and then we'll keep going. So, Lord, I submit all of these words that were just spoken to you, and I pray that even as we sing this, this next and last song, that you would continue to speak to us, that you would continue to 
to sanctify us, to help us, to help us to repent where we need to repent, help us to be encouraged where we need to be encouraged, and to ultimately just understand the grace that you have extended to all of us. And may that, that, that understanding empower us to reach out to outsiders in our uh, sphere of influence. And I pray that you would do that in the name of Jesus.